me. That was wrong. <laughs> I was thinking more of the drummer boy. Amen. So, all right. So we're going to get in the word here. And uh, certainly it's encouraging. Uh, just our time together so far. Really appreciate all the hard work that goes into our worship services. Very excited uh, for the for the new addition to the body uh, with the baptism today. Also, I uh, want to um, acknowledge and introduce everyone. Also, uh, moving back to the northwest region of the DFW Church, Matthew, where are you? Go ahead and stand up, Matthew. Amen. Matthew Babalini. Amen. Yes, he can sing and play instruments. So, very excited. So, uh, also, I uh, want to thank all the, the teens, uh, uh, certainly for the singing. Uh, Jordan, where's Jordan at? Jordan, where's Jordan at? Okay, great job. Awesome job. And everyone did a great job. I do, I want to let you know, I heard Steve Smith say that he wanted to have a wrap-off with you after <laughs> church. So if we can work that out, um, Laura was the one that brought that to my attention. So... Um, that's awesome. So I'm putting my money on you. Amen. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the last few weeks, we've been studying out the book of Jonah. And I regret, I should have done this, I should have video copied the Bible Project Jonah um, video clip. That would have probably been a good way to end the book of Jonah. Uh, maybe we'll show it another time. Uh, but I want to finish up here uh, this uh, time, our last three weeks, studying this um, phenomenal book out, kind of like what we did with the, the book of Ruth. But I want to bring Jesus now into this study. We haven't, we haven't brought Jesus into our study of the book. There's two parallel accounts, one in Matthew and one in Luke. We're going to look at the Matthew account. In Matthew chapter 12... It reads, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man for three days and three nights be in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will raise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So we have Jesus, and he's announcing the coming judgment for this generation, his generation. And as he's talking to these people, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they're coming up to him and says, you know, we, we would just like to see one good sign, Jesus. If you could just give us one good sign, then we'll believe. And you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And you got to ask yourself, what does that mean? What does that mean? And then what did that 
say to them, and maybe perhaps what that says to us today. What was the sign of Jonah? Was it Jesus talking about Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights? I don't know. But it does say that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment and condemn them because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Like I said, is it the belly of the fish for three days? The Luke scripture doesn't mention it. The Luke scripture just talks about how the the sign of Jonah will be given to that generation. Did that make sense? Did that affect, did that say something to the scribes and the Pharisees to the point where they're sitting there like, Jesus, just show us one thing. And Jesus says, the sign of Jonah. Did that make them go, oh my goodness. Jesus, or Noah in the belly of the fish. That's going to change everything for me. See, I don't think so. I don't think that was going to help them change their stubborn attitudes about believing Jesus. A man being in a fish for three days. As as remarkable as that is, I don't think it's really going to motivate anybody. So let's go back to Jonah. Let's, Let's dive in the book of Jonah one last time and let's see if we can figure out what is the sign of Jonah. Now, the last two weeks, what have we learned? One, what did, Jesus, what did Jonah know about himself? What did Noah know about himself, who he was? He knew he was part of the chosen people, a Hebrew. He knew he was called to bless through the Abrahamic uh, pl- um, promise to the whole world. He knew that he had a responsibility to go and bless other nations as a tribe of the Israel. And he knew a lot about God. Well, what did Jonah know about God? Which was the second thing that we talked about. (laughs) Jonah knew that God, the Lord God, was a loving God. Wanting all to repent. Merciful. Kind. But at the same time, God was going to bring judgment. Scripture we looked at there was Jonah chapter 4, chapter 2, or verse 2, the last part of it. He says, for I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from bringing disaster. So this was who Jonah knew God was. But Jonah knew that God was going to bring judgment. He was going to bring disaster. And then last week. We camped out on, what did God do with a disobedient prophet? And we know, Jonah ran away. Jonah didn't want to see the Assyrians repent, so he ran away. So what did God do to a disobedient prophet? Well, he loved them. Like he loved the Assyrians. And he provided ways for Jonah to repent. Which is good. God loves you, God loves me, God loves the Assyrians, God wants all people to repent because he loves them, but he's going to bring judgment. So we talk about Jonah, we talk about God, but you know who we really haven't camped out on much? 
is the Assyrian. So what I want to do is, as we try to figure out what is the sign of Jonah, let's look at the Assyrians now. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Again, we've talked about this. The, the Assyrians were a brutal, evil people. It'd be kind of like, you know, if you can like wrap up the Nazis and the Mongol hordes all into one. Incredible efficiency, brutality, swiftness, going over large parts of area and just destroying cities and nations. And God sends his prophet. God sends his man, his chosen vessel, his ambassador. And Jonah's attitude was, God, destroy them. They don't deserve anything. And so we ask ourselves, why did God send Jonah to the Assyrians? And again, you say, well, he loved them. Okay, great. Thank you. 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, it's a, it's a New Testament thing too. It says in verse 3, it says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See, God doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God's the same. And God says in both the New and the Old that he wants all people to be saved. Even these brutal, wicked Assyrians. And the Assyrians had a problem. They had a big problem. And we could sit here and say, yeah, of course. They're evil. They're brutal, they're wicked, they're violent. Of course they have a problem. Their problem is obvious to everyone. Especially those who they kill and destroy. But see, I don't think the problem is that clear. I don't think it's that clear. And there's a key to their problem. And again, I love diving into the scriptures because when you dive into the scriptures, you'll see things and understand things in a deep way. Jonah chapter 4, the last verse of the book of Jonah. Look what it says in verse 11. This is God talking to Jonah. It's the question that the book of Jonah has kind of ended on. And it says in verse 11, he says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Look at that phrase. He says, who do not know their right hand from their left. Really? 120,000 people that do not understand their right hand or their left hand? They don't know that? They don't understand what their right hand is or their left hand is? Which is your right hand? Put your right hand up. 
Hey, put your left hand up for a second. Do you know that you know the difference between your right and your left hand? Isn't that encouraging? Can you imagine 120,000 people not knowing their right or their left hand? No, you can't. Because you know why? That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is, yeah, do they know how to go right? Yeah, they know how to go right. Do they know how to go left? Yeah, they know how to go left. So what is God saying when you have these many people that don't know their right hand from their left hand? See, what God's saying is that the Assyrians do not have the knowledge, the understanding to be able to repent. It's an expression that it's a lack of knowledge, seriously, and or of innocence. It might even be translated helpless and pitiful. You think of Jesus and loving the masses and they come to him over the hill and he looks at the crowds and he's, he's, he has compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed. And we think about this and, you know, they're pulling their children and their ox and, and they're probably not dressed well and they're hungry and, oh, those poor, pitiful, helpless and harassed people. Sure, great. But how about a horde of invaders? murderers, rapists, coming over the hillsides with swords and arrows. And God looks at them, and they don't know their right or their left. They're helpless, harassed. They could not, the Assyrians could not make the kind of decision that would give them relief from the trouble that they were in. And the trouble that they're in has finally come up to God. Their evil has come up to God and gotten God's attention. Now, it's not implying that the Assyrians were innocent. Undiscerning of their ways. But they're trapped by their troubles. Not knowing how to escape their problem. This is massive. I mean, we look at certain people and like, okay, I have forgiveness on them. I have mercy on them. You know, they're, they're kind of pitiful. It's easy to have forgiveness on that type of person. Jordan. You just look at them and you're like, poor Jordan. You know, and, and, and it's so nice that someone had pity on him and married poor Jordan. Because no one else would have married that pitiful, poor, and blind man. Oh, but how about someone who is trapped in all sorts of sin? Vicious, mean, deadly. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I'm not going to have forgiveness on them. They know what they're doing. They're guilty. 
And yeah, they, they are responsible. But do they have a means of escape? See, the Assyrians were innocent and undiscerning in the sense that they were trapped by their troubles and they did not know how to escape their evil. You know, in Psalm chapter 103, it says, For God knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. Imagine that. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that God could look at certain types of people and be like, they don't get it. They don't understand. They have no mechanism. They have no way to get out of the trouble they're in. So my point today, my thought for the day, is how does God deal with a disobedient people? How does God deal with a disobedient people? Because you can look at, okay, this is how God deals with me. This is how God deals with you. This is how God deals with the Israelites. This is how God deals. This is who God is. But how about a disobedient people? So how does God deal with a disobedient people? He provides a means of escape. That's what he does. To a disobedient people, he gives them, he provides them relief and escape. Here it is. Here's the mechanism. Here's your opportunity to understand where you are as a people and so you can get out of the trouble you're in. Because who you are, you have nothing to help you. And so Jonah's preaching sets before the Syrians two options. One, repent. Listen to the word of God and find relief. Or two, continue to sin arrogantly and be totally overthrown. Those are the two options that Jonah, the prophet, brings to the Assyrians. Let's look look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read here, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This time he's willing to go. Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the Assyrians, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh, pardon me, mercy. That was dinner last night, amen. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he said. Eight words. Eight words. I don't know, one, three days? Eight words. And what do you see? (laughs) Why didn't God just destroy it? Go in one day, say it. But it says forty days. 
I'm going to give you 40 more days. God's patient. God's continually being patient with his evil people, and he's providing a means of escape. Giving them time to understand the problem they're in. I love knives. I love swords. I like guns. And the reason I like them is because they're quick and effective. Patience is not quick and effective. Patience is hard and bloody and tumultuous and frustrating and irritating. 40 more days of your sin, and then you're going to be destroyed. You know, again, bringing Jesus back into 2 Peter, I'm just going to read this verse to you. 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, The Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance again god is not different in the old and the new testament god wants all men to be saved god wants all men to come to knowledge of him god is not slow but is patient not wishing anyone to perish but that for everyone can repent 40 days Then in verse 5 in chapter 3, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, now, now things are starting to stir here. He's out there preaching, teaching. I don't know if it's the first day, the third day, but after a couple days of saying eight words, these people believed God. And then in verse 6, the word of the Lord, or the word reached the, the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. But everyone, let everyone turn from his evil ways, from his violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. This is a pretty serious fast. How serious are you in your household? You know, me and my household, we're pretty serious because when someone's going to do a fast, when someone's going to put on sackcloth, you know, I expect everyone to put on sackcloth. And here's an example of that. You know, um, everyone's going to wear it. <laughs> I mean, it, this is serious business. And if Patty and I are going to fast, if Patty and I are going to wear sackcloth, you know Bowser's going to be wearing it. You know, again, what, what did I say last week? Embrace the weirdness. You read the Bible and it's like, oh, God, what's he do? The animals? That's serious. They're serious. 
I'm not sure if that's sackcloth or that's more like a, a prayer cloth or something like that or, you know. But imagine, imagine a city of 120,000 people and even the animals are walking around in sackcloth. See, the people believed God and the message that Jonah preached. And it says here they acknowledged, they acknowledged their evil. They acknowledged their evil ways and their violence. And it says they humbled themselves before God and before each other. You know, you're not going to look good in sackcloth. It's going to make you look fat. (laughs) It's going to hit in unflattering places. You're not going to be able to find shoes that go with sackcloth. And so you're going to walk around humbled with each other. And what they do? They prayed. They called out to God. Because, see, they got it. They started understanding. It's like, it's like this guy walking around town and, and saying these eight words. It's like, yeah, you know, I've, I've been really thinking about my ways here lately. Yeah, I've been doing some stupid stuff. Treating my spouse wrong. Treating my kids wrong. Treating my parents wrong. Treating my coworkers wrong. Driving down the road and a little bit of road rage. Maybe, maybe my taxes, maybe things that, that are going through my mind. Maybe even getting on the internet. Yeah, that prophet, man, he kind of hit a, hit a nerve. And now the king's getting involved. And he's calling everybody to get serious. And what does the king say? Who knows? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. Who knows? Maybe he'll turn from his fierce anger. Who knows? Maybe we won't perish. But you know, whatever, I'm still going to be humble. And I'm still going to wear that sackcloth. And I'm still going to call out to God. Because who knows? Are you convicted of your sin? No, seriously. Do you still think about what you're capable of doing? Do you evaluate your own heart? We're all ugly. We're all ugly. And I'm not talking about on the outside. I'm talking about the inside. We're all ugly. We're all capable. We're, we're all of us are one situation, one thought, one bad decision away. Do you think about that? Does it, does it cut you? Does it bother you? What words, what thoughts, what feelings can come out? Do you humble yourself before God? Do you humble yourself before other people? Do you cry out for God for deliverance? Because you know. 
I love Einstein's quote. Arguably the most intelligent person that walked on this earth. Smarter than us. And he said, every day I stand at the threshold of great ignorance. The most intelligent man probably alive. And he's like, he knows how ignorant he is. I know what I'm capable of. And I hate it. I don't want to be that way. My way doesn't work. I saw that a long time ago. My way doesn't work. In verse 10 in chapter 3, when God saw, do you know you can see repentance? <laughs> you can see it. I see it. There's, there's a difference. They're, they're acting differently. Their, their, their words, their speech, their actions, how they treat other people. It's different. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relented. Oh my gosh, this is incredible. These people who didn't know their right or their left and had no avenue of repentance, no avenue, understanding of how they could change. God saw their repentance. And he didn't bring the disaster. You remember that first Timothy scripture we looked at earlier? Chapter 2. In verse 3 through 4, it says, This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What happened to the Assyrians? They came to the knowledge of the truth. They accepted, they believed the message that Jonah brought to them, this evil, wicked, violent people, and they came to the knowledge of the truth that allowed them in words and actions and response to get out of this really bad situation they were in. Because God loved them. And they acknowledged the truth. And they repented. They accepted the escape that God offered them. They accepted it. They saw the, they saw the opportunity. They accepted the escape. Here, bottom line is this is awesome news. This is incredible. This is mind-blowing. God loves me. God loves you. God even loves disobedient nations. And he wants to give people an avenue of escape. You don't have to go down this path. You don't have to be judged and be destroyed. You know the killer thing about this? This is the message that the believer Jonah did not want to take to the Assyrians, a bunch of wicked, violent non-believers. It just, it makes his disobedience all the greater. <gasps> he didn't want to take this awesome message to these people who didn't know their right hand from their left? 
Oh, he just looked on the outside. He just looked at their actions. He didn't peer inside their heart and realize they had no mechanism. So he didn't want to do it, but he did. So, so what's the sign of Jonah? What's the sign of Jonah? <laughs> I thought you would never ask. <laughs> the sign of Jonah is not, in my opinion, not Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days. Again, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law. Give us a sign, Jesus. No. Only the sign of Jonah. Uh, who is in the belly of the fish three days and three nights? The men of Nineveh will rise up and judge this nation. The Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, oh, three days in the fish. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, a, that's a blow away sign. That's going to make me repent. No. They didn't do that. The sign of Jonah was the Ninevites' acceptance of the message of God that produced repentance. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, believed the message of God. The Ninevites understood God's love and compassion for them, and that welled up in them a response to the word of God. Not Jonah. Not his experience in the belly of the fish. The Ninevites showed their faith by believing God without this overwhelming, doubt-dispelling, miraculous, guaranteed of a sign that Jonah was God's ambassador. The Ninevites didn't need that because, see, they believed the message. The messenger was whoever. Oh, you're in the belly of a fish before you got here? Oh, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. How was it? Man, that's disappointing. Wow, you went through that? Boy, that's a rough thing. Woo! It wasn't a big deal. In fact, we don't even know that the Assyrians even knew about Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days. But what did they hear? The word of God. The message of God. The people showed their genuine repentance, which was enough for God to unleash his waiting grace. And to bind up his waiting wrath. See, the Ninevites, the Assyrians' theology, their understanding of God and his ways might have been woefully ineffective or, or inadequate. But their actions and faith were evidence of acceptance of their repentance. It was evident to God, and God acted. Imagine that. It wasn't this prophet's life. It wasn't this prophet what he went through. It was this prophet sharing the word to these evil, wicked people, and they believed it. These non-believers, these non-Israelis, these wicked, evil people listened to the word of God and accepted it. God and the book of Jonah are pretty cool. <laughs> it's blow away. But you know what? We need to wrap up a few 
loose ends before we bring this to conclusion. Because, see, the scribes and the Pharisees were wanting proof from Jesus. So they'll believe. And Jesus says to them in verse 39, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, the prophet, the sign of Jonah, that these wicked non-Israelis, unbelievers, believed the message of God from a conflicted minor prophet. But this group, this generation, not us, that generation that Jesus was preaching to, those teachers, those scribes, would not believe the message even from God himself. And so what will happen? The men of Nineveh, the Assyrians, will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So how does God deal with a disobedient people? He provides a means of escape. How does God deal with the disobedient people? He provides. The knowledge of the truth. And see, for us, it's Jesus. Jesus is our means of escape. The knowledge of the truth. And that evil generation did not want to accept it. You know, just... just Throwing it all down and just helping us understand this. you got to keep reading a little bit in the book of Matthew. Look at the next verse in Matthew. This is the last verse we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 12. This is it. This is right after the sign of Jonah. That's all you're going to get. When an unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house, which I came from. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself that they may enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. This is the evil generation that asked for a sign. See, this generation would not allow itself to be embraced by God's love. That generation was unwilling to not only allow itself to be embraced in God's love, but the willingness to forego the coming judgment. See, Israel swept the house clean. Israel got everything nice in order. Israel was, was living this, this spiritual life, and, and it's kind of like squeaky clean little life, and, and, but there was really no knowledge of the truth inside of Israel. And it says... The spirit went out and found even worse spirits to bring back to it. So the nation of Israel, this evil generation, was going to be worse off than it ever was. And the generation only sign would be that a nation of evil, wicked, violent non-believers were willing to accept the message of God and repent. Something that they were unwilling to do. Because they had nothing inside the house. 
no knowledge of the truth. They were given knowledge of the truth, unlike the Assyrians. But the Israelites, even though they had the knowledge of the truth to be able to repent and change their ways, didn't want to because, well, prove it to me. Prove it to me who you are. Then I'll believe. Sign of Jonah was that the Assyrians were willing to believe it without proof. So we have to ask ourselves, are we motivated? Do we listen to the message? And it's like, oh my gosh, look at this. This is blow away. Or are we more like Israel? Prove me. Show it to me. If you just do this, then I'll believe. And Jesus was saying, that's an evil, wicked generation. You know, the book of Jonah, like Ruth, is a fascinating study of the character and love of God. Love for you, love for me, love for Israel, and love for wicked, evil, violent people. Because God wants all men to be saved. I pray that we can appreciate and accept that love and that we in turn then can go and share that love to other people so they can accept it. Let's go to God in prayer as we take our communion.